Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslovsky. I'm using my full voice right now and detecting hints of earth and fire. Let's find out what your voice feels like too. This is episode number 95. Listener, listener, you rah-rah, you awesome person, praise to thee, I sing, I sing, praise to thee, you awesome listener, you rah-rah, you awesome listener. (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha! How'd you like that? If you did not go to the University of Wisconsin-Madison for your university education like I did, that was an adaptation of the song Varsity, which is the song at my alma mater. It's also my funky way of saying that I am deeply grateful that you're gifting your time and attention to what's coming up. A fantastic chat. As always... This episode is brought to you by my voice, Patreon supporters, and other contributors. Remember, I do not have sponsors. I just have you. So consider showing your support for me, this show, and our community at joelzeslovsky.com slash support. Now, here's an extra dose of love to Tanya over at budgetandthebeach.com, who recently wrote this lovely iTunes review. Tanya said, Smart and Simple Matters has become one of my favorite podcasts to listen to, and I wish he made more episodes because I always want more to listen to. Keep up the great work, Joel. And I'm dying to know if there will be a Simple Rev 2016 event. End of review. First of all, I received that, Tanya. I am grateful for your kind words. Two more things. You can email me or catch me on social media to ask questions. Just wanted to make that abundantly clear. They do not have to be posed in iTunes reviews, although I will not discourage anything in iTunes reviews. They are always welcome. Lastly, yes. Yes, there will be a Simple Rev 2016. (laughs) Ha ha! It's going down on September 16th and 17th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can get details, a shot at a ticket, if you're on the Simple Rev email list. That's at simplerev.com slash newsletter. I will say more about our third intimate Simple Living community event in future episodes. But for now, I want to tell you about something that's not simple. That is not eating cheese for 30 days. Yes, that is hard. That is not easy. Uh, I just completed my Whole30 food challenge, which meant that I was abstaining from any dairy for the first time in my whole life. And goodness, goodness, I love cheese. I missed it so. I am so happy. Cheese, you are back in my life. A butter, yogurt, milk, all fine and dandy. But cheese, oh, cheese. I love you. 
Now, uh, before I get into this episode's conversation, I want to mention there's some themes that are popping up more and more in these episodes and that will continue to pop up more and more, and that's community. What it means to be in community, what it means to feel like you belong to something bigger than yourself, and I explore that with my guest, Barbara McAfee, pretty heavily in this episode. I hope you like it. So in addition to authenticity and simplicity and gratitude, community will be featuring more heavily into everything that I say, everything that I do. I hope you are excited for it. I know that I am. So what did Barbara and I chat about in this one? Hmm. For starters, we discussed why fear is like an outfit that looks bad on everyone the five distinct elements of your voice and how to use them, how innate talents are trained out of you, and of course, how to get them back, what it means to be radically alive and where to invoke it, as Barbara would say, and how to midwife your spoken or written voice into the world. We're chatting about community, the power of song, being physically and intellectually outside the mainstream. It is a doozy. You ready to do this? Here we go. Goodness, I am excited. And I will unapologetically use my overly excited voice because my guest for this episode is Barbara McAfee. She assumes different roles and voices based on the context, but many people know her as a voice coach, singer-songwriter, speaker, or author of the book Full Voice. She is all about the power of sound and, at least to me, is a masterful community builder through experiences like leading community song circles. She lives in Minneapolis, right along the Mississippi River, and hey, I could probably wave at her from my parents' house on the other side in St. Paul, but whether that's true or not, welcome, Barbara. I am jazzed to have you join me for a chat. Thank you so much. It's a joy to be here. Let us start where... I always start a conversation with something I call the seeds of awesomeness. I want to help people understand how you came to be the person you are today. So can you tell us something unique about your environment as a youth or one or two experiences you had growing up that had a big impact on you? Certainly. Oh my, that is such a great question. I have to say, I grew up a lot outside. I grew up in Stillwater, Minnesota, just a little bit east of here. And uh, I loved, I didn't live on the, on the St. Croix River, but I had really good friends who did. I wonder sometimes if that's why they were my friends, but I liked them too. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time on the river, in the river, being by the river, uh, and grew up a lot outside. And I think that had a lot to do with who I am, that I, uh, I was the youngest of three. My brothers were a lot older and up to a lot of other things. So I spent a lot of time alone or with friends outside. So that, for sure, had it's not very unique, but I, I felt like um, being out under the sky was a, was a place of education and solace and delight for me. And, of course, I'm old, old enough that, that it was unsupervised time. You know, they just, mom would send you out the door and you'd be gone all morning, you know, no play dates. So... You'd come home when you were hungry. And I'd say the other piece that is that was such a gift later is when I found the arts. Uh, I was always a creative kid. We were always doing shows in the neighborhood and puppet shows and making up games. And I had a great next-door neighbor who was super creative and wacky and funny. 
that helped me in my youth. And then when I went on to middle school and high school, I was sort of like lost, like a lot of kids were. And then I found the really good choir in high school and had a great choir director, great choir director named Dennis Brown, who I'm still using stuff I learned from him with my clients. Mm. And I stepped into the theater department and found a bunch of other weirdos. And when I see arts programming and getting cut in schools, I just think, oh my God, you know, this is kill- literally going to kill kids because it is a place where you can go if you're creative and strange and awkward and, and get welcomed and have a place to express yourself. So, What do you mean by weirdos? Awkwardness? Because <laughs> I don't get the sense from you that you are socially awkward or sure you might be outside of the mainstream in terms of how you interact with the world and the mm-hmm. impact that you're making, but... Help me understand that a little bit better. Like, who were your fellow weirdos? What were the the attributes, whether it's in high school or maybe even earlier, back in your just running around outside doing whatever the heck you wanted with some other friends in the neighborhood? What was that like? Well, I've always had a taste for people who were a little bit outside the mainstream. So before I even knew what gay and lesbian was, my two best friends turned out to be a gay man and a lesbian woman. And... That was not very, and, and they were teased a lot. We were all teased a lot because we were, I was funny looking. I was the tallest kid in the class and very skinny and funny looking. And my father was a very strict teacher in the middle school. Um, and the kids didn't want to go up against him because he was six, eight <laughs> and really mean. So they come after his daughter, of course. So there's lots of bullying and teasing and stuff like that um, of the, of, of me and my friends. So we were kind of a band of, misfits in that way. Um, oh, the kids that were just had a strange sense of humor, um, were a little too smart. Um, that kind of thing. Yeah. And who I am now would shock who I was then. Me too. I just keep want. I just want to go back and say, Oh honey, you just wait. It's going to be great. <laughs> but you just have to, you know, go hip deep through mud for a few years, but you'll be good. You'll be so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's many, many letters or conversations I would love to have with 12-year-old Joel or 21-year-old Joel. And I was in a similar boat as you. I'm six foot, six inches tall. So that's borderline freakishly tall. Uh, Your father, six, eight. Whenever I see somebody who's taller than me, I look at them and I think, wow, that person is so tall. And then I realize they're probably only just an inch or two taller than I am. Uh, But I was goofy looking with ears that were sticking out. My neck, I got teased you know people used to call me giraffe boy because my neck was so long there yeah kids, kids kids has the capacity and not just kids but even adults too uh to just be brutal and to really try to exactly. break people down and i know that you and i are very much about building people up and bringing people together so it's cool to hear some of the origins of how that formulated in your mind some of those you had some great experiences as a youth, uh, whether they were just the free spirit and doing whatever you wanted and being having the freedom to band together with fellow weirdos in your choir class and meeting this great director in high school. What challenges carried forward into your 20s and into your 30s that you have overcome in some way or that are still kind of sticking with you a little bit? Well, I think the biggest one was finding my voice. And I'm, I was a good singer and, you know, I was in all the good choirs, but I would never, ever, ever sing a solo ever in front of anyone, not family, not friends. I wouldn't sing alone. I wouldn't show anybody my voice, which is strange because my grandfather, um, 
whom I knew really well, was on the radio when he was a young man and sang his whole life. My mother was a music major and a soloist. My brother had a band and was a soloist. So it's kind of like, well, what is my problem? Right? What is my problem? Yeah. Such a good question. Such a good question. And uh, after college, I someone overheard me at the end of college singing late at night in the costume shop. I was a theater major. And I was singing so I wouldn't, like, sew myself to something. And so I was so tired. And someone overheard me, told a mutual friend. And that person said, I hear you have a voice. I'm looking for a singer for my jazz trio. Would you sing for me? And someone in my mouth said yes. Hmm. Someone, I really can't wait, imagine. Someone in your mouth said yes? Yes. <laughs> because I have no idea. I would have never, I mean, I can't imagine why I would ever say yes to like my greatest fear, but I think it was my soul talking. And so I sang for my friend uh, and he said, oh my gosh, I've known you for all these years. I've never heard you singing. Uh, You're in. And so off I went, but it was just, I was so petrified and I don't, I know that's not unique, you know, fear of public speaking or public singing is like high on the list, but I got really angry and frustrated with like, how come uh, I'm so afraid? And that question has led me down all kinds of paths of really opening up to that question. Why am I so afraid? And how can I sing and, you know, overcome that? And I have. I now can get up in front of 1,200 people and sing and uh, without any accompaniment. And I have a grand time. So yeah, you do. The, Just watching your YouTube videos, <laughs> I can tell you are enjoying the heck out of it. What's, yeah. What talking about that fear, which is something just—it's human nature. We're fearful of all yeah. kinds of things, real and imagined. What have you discovered over the course of time? Was there one or two primary fears that was holding you back from showing the world your full voice? Well, of course. Uh, fear of being an imposter. I mean, they're just, they're not that, the fears aren't that interesting, Joel. I mean, they all kind of like, it's like an outfit that looks bad on everybody, you know? It's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, fear of looking foolish, making a mistake was a big one. Perfectionism, um, being, you know, caught out as a fraud, blah, blah, blah. One of the things that I've been thinking about lately and writing some about is what that might be about for me because I had an experience a few years ago where I was sitting in a group of people I was very comfortable with and it was my job to bring a song to close the event and someone said something and the song kind of rose up out of the magic date ball inside me and I thought oh that's the song that's perfect and then there was this feeling of nervousness and I went oh my god I'm nervous how cool I never get nervous anymore <laughs> and I I started investigating it, and what I came up with is is kind of a reframe of it, which is it's the onset of the sacred. So for me to sing, really sing something, or really offer something, you know, teach in a certain way or speak in a certain way, my little self, my little ego can't be the one that's running the show. I have to be taken over by something bigger than me. I'm still here, but there's something else here. Well, the little me just has to kind of grab for a second. It's like, no, no, I don't want to give up. It's my job to protect you. You can't, you know. So that process of of releasing the little me into the larger, whatever that is, um, uh, sometimes involves that little moment of anxiety. And if that gets going and we feed it and make a whole stories about it, then then we're in stage fright. 
Yeah. So, okay. Well, let's I let's do. give up the I'm, stage fright. Let's give up the fear conversation. You mentioned something that just stuck with me. Taken okay. over by something bigger than fear. And normally we're doing that when we are thinking about other humans and how they're going to perceive us, whether we're going to be judged. I'm sure we're going to weave together some threads in our chat, but I think a great point to jump off from here is the crossroads of singing, song, the sacred, and community, and bringing people together. Mm. So do you mind, can we start with the power of community and how you, you use your voice, how you use singing to remind us, I think you, you have a phrase about our innate connections. What do you mean, what do you mean mm-hmm. by that? Can you take me into that statement, community singing, as sure. a way to remind us about our innate connections? Oh, certainly. Here's the thing. When I lead community singing, I lead them uh, song circles about once a month, except in the summer, because who cares, uh, at Hennepin Avenue United Methodist Church on the second floor art gallery. It's, it's, uh, they give us a space uh, for free. It's not a religious now sponsored by the church necessarily. But in that community, like last Sunday, we had about 60 people in the circle of all ages and musical abilities. It was all oral tradition singing, no music, no lyric sheets, nothing. I just teach everything line by line. And what happened there happens at every one of those, which is I get a song going. Sometimes it's a round, so there's harmony, even if people don't know what harmony, how to do it, they get the experience of it. And then I just sit down and shut up. I turn off all my leadership qualities and 60 strangers figure out how to stop the song on a dime. And this is early in the evening, right? Or, you know, in the experience, this is maybe the second or third song. And it happens reliably every time. And that is instructive to me in some way, because I think, well, what is that? There's no director. There's no plan. I didn't even say we're going to decide that it's over. But 60 strangers tune in some way and listen. I think the oral tradition helps that, you know, where people are listening in a different way. They're not certain in a certain way. And they all decide that it's over. And I've seen it happen again and again. So I think there's something going on, some innate connection that we have all the time that we've been trained out of to think we're all alone and our neocortex is running our, you know, our show. Uh, But there's something else. And I don't even know how to name that. I don't care to name it even. But there's something that lights up in oral tradition community singing, from my experience, that is undeniable. We can't, you know, mess with it because you can't deny that. You just, that happens. You know what I mean? You can over, usually override like, oh, that was just luck. But that one, that's an undeniable experience of being one, uh, one thing one being together. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you how we get trained out of it because I agree. I I see this with my two boys at ages five and two, Mm -hmm. some of the things that are just innate in them that are, we can't stop them. We can't ask for them to come into the world. We can't ask them for them to leave. They just simply are. And I think at some point certain things get socialized out of us. And I was going to ask you, like, wh- where, where does this happen? Why is this? What's the problem here? And then I remembered, I think you're part of the school of thinking, kind of like I'm starting to be when it comes to community and our gifts. A man, Peter Block, who you're friends with, and I understand you two present in public together. I'm kind of channeling Peter here, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's not focus on problem solving. Let's not talk about what's wrong. Let's talk about possibility. Let's talk about potential. Let's talk about gifts. How, when you... 
when you think of community, when you think of community building, whether it's related to your relationship with Peter, the kinds of experiences that you create together, how does it work in your mind? What are the, the things that float to the forefront when it comes to community for you? Well, it's interesting. I've learned so much from Peter and uh, we've learned a lot together. We've discovered a lot together in our work. And uh, I'm so glad you brought him in. I miss him. I haven't seen him for a while. Uh, he's been busy getting his new book ready. Darn ooh, it. New ooh. books. Boy, yeah, I gotta got to figure out book. how to pre-order that. And yeah, it's uh, about economics. And he wrote it with John McKnight and Walter Bergman. So it's, I think it should be out any minute now. Okay, sorry, Anyhow, continue. Um, sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, how do I, so the question again is something about how do I think about community? Well, it's always shifting for me. I do think loneliness, uh, the loneliness of a nuclear family uh, and the rugged individualist uh, certainly gets deep into our bones very quickly. I'm really glad your boys are still teaching you about what that looks like before they get too socialized into it because it's so... It's kind of like the fish in the ocean. You don't even know. I don't even know we're in it. I'm in it until I'm all of a sudden I step out into this feeling of community and I'm like, oh my goodness, oh wow, uh, what's this? This is this is familiar and strange at the same time. I do think the uh, Peter's all about conversations. You know that small group conversation. That's it. That's how how community gets built. And I do agree with that to a point. And there's still individuals talking to each other, right? There's still individuality. And so I think there are these other kinds of experiences that are um, beautiful, moving together, breathing together, singing together. Uh, I think part of the reason I love living in Minnesota, if we ever have another blizzard again, is that feeling of connection, you know, the old barn raising feeling. Um, so I think there's a lot, there are places where it can still happen, and I think that's why sporting events are so. That's why we have the temple to football down, downtown. You're talking about you know, the, the new Minnesota Vikings stadium, U.S. Bank Stadium. Yes, that which, is yeah, that is leaking, does. and uh, don't get me started. Uh, but I'm begin. I, I have compassion for us because I feel like that sport sports is still a place where people can all be together and be connected in some old way and do the wave and sing and jump up and down and, and kind of lose themselves in the collective. And uh, have you read uh, Barbara Ehrenreich's Dancing in the Streets? I have not even heard of it. A History of Collective Ecstasy, that's the subtitle. Ooh. I think I think a lot about it because she, she talks about sort of the history of collective ecstasy through time and has some theories about it, one of which is once there were so many festivals, there were so many opportunities where we could wear special clothes, get a little altered through chemicals, uh, eat special foods and go out and mingle. And there was a lot of opportunities for that in many older cultures. And then once the individual started showing up on the scene, that concept around the Renaissance time, all of a sudden people started talking about melancholy and depression. And her theory is that we have this huge need to get the heck out, get the heck away from this person in here and get <clears throat> kind of immerse ourselves in the hole. And with the onset of more and more individualism, melancholy came in. So that's kind of her theory. And I think about that a lot, about where, 
there's a huge need we carry as human beings that gets unsatisfied and then we medicate around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are we are preventing ourselves from having the thing that perhaps we need most, which is other people and feeling their other yeah. energy, knowing that you're part of something bigger than yourself. I totally and they're agree. so aggravating, though. They're so aggravating. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. Other people. <laughs> sometimes it depends. On... They are. I know, but that's the that's the thing. That's the cost of it. You know, it's, <laughs> well, it's not all it's not all sunny and sweet. I mean, it is when I no. do it because we've been together for two hours. But there is that other side of it. It is messy and awkward and humiliating and. Yeah, all these things that we associate with some of the downsides of life. But where we where do we find the most joy? Hopefully, we find it by being outdoors and in nature. But hopefully, we also find it in our connections with other humans. You mentioned before, you know, moving together, singing together, breathing together, and whether you're doing that in a small group of six indoors in some kind of small intimate event, or whether you're doing that with eighty thousand people at a football stadium, and you're all going bonkers. Yeah, there is a sense of. I think you would probably use the word aliveness, which is Mm -hmm. something that I don't normally hear talk about. And I know you're big on your retreats. You talk about radical well-being and radical aliveness. I love your lexicon, but it's just, it's wonderful. Thank you. How do we, do we need to draw that out in others, this sense of radical aliveness? Or is it more we just need to kind of create a spark inside of somebody and let them just radiate that radical aliveness on their own? Mm, that's a great question. I'll probably live in that one for the rest of my life. feels like I already am living in that. You know, when I go into a corporate setting, I, I mean, I'm, one of the gifts of my life is I get to spend time in lots and lots of different kinds of places. Uh, and when I go into a corporate setting, I just, it breaks my heart, a lot of them. You know, it's, it's just our expectations for how we should be living our lives, the level of anxiety stress, overwork, um, disconnection, lack of relationship. It's just, it's heartbreaking. It's totally heartbreaking. So I do think there's something just by, what's that? Can I stop you for a moment? Yeah. So when it comes to corporations, whether it's 50 person or uh, 10,000 global uh, workers all from, you know, 15 different countries. Is there something inherent to the structure of a corporation that limits our ability to connect, to be authentic, to show vulnerability? Or what is it? Because I I used to work in a corporation for over 10 years, and I have actually been known to rail against corporations just with broad strokes that maybe are a little bit too broad. So what is it that you Mm -hmm. see about the structure of this entity, this corporate entity that is so restrictive? Well, I think it's the same kind of emphasis that's, that's, that's souring our political process right now. And it's just, it's all about the money and the money is a part of it, but it, it's, it's just so focused on shareholder value and bottom line. And it's gotten increasingly so and increasingly competitive. So it feels sort of like, um, you know, I was an organizational consultant for 12 years and, and we were off, we were working with clients who wanted, yes, to have a viable, profitable business, but also to create a place where people could thrive and where there was like the triple bottom line. We didn't have that language back then, but where 
you know, the community mattered, the people who worked there mattered, and the shareholders mattered. And I just think that's become sort of, oh, isn't that sweet? <laughs> you know, that's like in a lot of places. Um, on the other hand, there are some people who are, you know, still out on the vanguard. My publisher, Barrett Kohler, uh, is a for-benefit corporation. So it's somewhere between a nonprofit and a private company. They're still a private company, but they have really strict rules about um, how they reinvest their uh, profits in the community. Um, and I'm really proud to be a part of that, yeah. you know, part of that organization. So I know there are people who are going to reinvent something there. Um, but I just have, I don't know, it just feels like it's gotten, the whole culture has gotten more and more anxious, more and more desperate, uh, more and more isolated, uh, and more focused on, you know, that not the, just the whole energy of the culture has gotten really much more focused on money, 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 right? Yes, so, but you can help, uh, and you do help, at least when it comes to going, whether you're going into a corporation or leading a yoga retreat or doing a song circle. I know a lot of your work primarily revolves around voice, and if we could, uh, let's just mm-hmm. kind of shift sure. into that a little bit. Uh, whether it's my voice, uh, whether it's our collective voice, we're singing together, maybe it's the voice inside my head or the one in my mouth that says yes to things that you're like, why the heck did I say yes to that? <laughs> You you coach groups, you coach individuals about how to open up their voices in service of their best work in life. I love I yeah. love that sentence right there. And you your book called Full Voice. I haven't read it yet, but I plan to. Uh, you you talk about these five distinct colors or elements of your voice. I believe mm-hmm. I'm using a combination of earth and fire in our conversation so far. You'll tell me if I'm wrong, but we have these five here: earth, fire, water, metal, and air. Can you break down those five distinct colors before we talk about how we can use our voice in all walks of our life to change the narrative, to under- make people understand what we mean, regardless of how we say it? Or, I mean, in relation to how we say it. Sure. And you are absolutely spot on, by the way. Earth and fire. Okay, that's I'm an earth and yeah. yeah, I think I'm just almost permanently in an earth and fire mode. I just, I'm so excited. I'm so easily excited and easily fascinated. I'm just like, wow, isn't this amazing? But I got to yeah. drop down into some water every once in a while and get some mm-hmm. air. Okay, you well, do you it. Have- you do it. I'm doing a poor impersonation of you. <laughs> no, Let's- you're doing great. I should just turn you loose. Oh, you're my, my goodness. new lo- you're lo- my lovely assistant. Well, you don't want to turn my me loose. <laughs> don't turn me loose with the metal voice on permanent. Oh, no. No. Okay. No. okay. So okay. break it down <laughs> for right. us a little bit, if you would, please. Earth, fire, water, sure. metal, and air. Okay. Earth is, it sounds, uh, it's the d- d- deep part of your voice. It, it's down here. And all by itself, it can be a little dull. You know, the, really, the monotone person is often in the earth voice. But if you need to say no to someone, earth is your, is your thing, right? No. That's like my animal talking to your animal. Mm-hmm. So that's the earth sound. I have a lot of that, too. I think it comes sometimes with a big body, right? I'm 6'2". So, you know, my people all have big bodies and low voices. Next is fire, which is all about exactly what you said, passion, excitement. It's a great uh, voice to use for public speaking or preaching, as the case may be. Uh, so that's fire. And uh, uh, Dr. King, Dr. Martin King, is somebody I use a lot to describe that. And also Bonnie Raitt, all the great belting singers, have, you know, blues singers have that kind of quality. Next, we have water. And 
I work with a lot, like I'm working right now with a, a woman who's been a hospice chaplain for a long time. And when she has people who are grieving in her presence, she uses this voice all the time because you feel how that's like, you know, somebody putting their arm around you. It's mm. warm and flowing, uh, except now she's going to be a public speaker because she wrote a book. And if you do this in front of a group, they're just going to go right to sleep. Right. Wake up, wake up, wake up, right? That's water, and it's good for anything your heart has to say. I'm sorry, I love you, good job, um, that sounds really hard. It's just, just anything your heart has to say. All right, so we've gone from, we're going from the bottom to the top, if you hadn't figured out. Okay. So we've, uh, next we have metal, and metal is like right in the nose, as you can hear. And uh, <laughs> uh, I always think of bluegrass singers, and I think of... Uh, Cats, I use people, I use cats sometimes to get people to make these exaggerated versions of these sound, the sound. And mostly what the metal is good for is amplification. So sports coaches are really good at this. You know, if a sports coach said, well, good job, hustle, hustle, <laughs> no one would hear that, right? Go, team, hey, go, we can do yeah. it, yes. <laughs> so it's just really good for sending the sound a long way. Which is really interesting because bluegrass singers use it. Balkan people from the Balkan women's choirs use it, and it's interesting that that sound is is often reflected in the music of mountainous areas. Right. Okay. Isn't that interesting? So there's yeah. the metal. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, we have air, and air is very airy, and we often talk to babies and pets here. Hi, baby. Hi. Oh, what a good baby. Um, it's good for lots of different things, as they all are. But one of the things I'd like to even suggest in a professional environment or community environment is you can use the air to float an idea. So, for instance, if I say, I have an idea. Or if I say, I have an idea. Mm-hmm. Which idea do you like better? I notice the difference. Yeah, it's also good for storytelling. Um, you know, most of the fairy tales start once upon a time in a land far, far away. You know, there's a sort of invokes us another place. That's a that's a two and a half hour workshop summarized. Well, yes, I know. I know we're just giving the broadest of strokes and you cover Which it all fine. in your book, Full Voice. I say if people want the 20 minute version, though, I watched your TEDx talk. Oh, great. Uh, yeah. About this topic. It was hilarious, but it was also really powerful. And I'm going to mm. link to it in the show notes because I think people would enjoy it and also get a lot out of it in terms of how we use these colors of the voice. And I, I think I'm going off of memory here, which is always a dangerous proposition because my memory is not strong. <laughs> I believe I heard you say in your TED Talk that something like you midwife voices into the world. And this kind of ties back to your work with the voice do you have different delivery plans for how you midwife voices into the world? Like right now, you and I are speaking, and we can use different tools because it's a verbal medium. Do you also mm-hmm. help people with the written voice? Mm-hmm. You know, yes. Uh, what's interesting is this: uh, the voice has its own intelligence. I'm sure of that. So people come to work with me, and... I've gotten much more explicit about saying, well, you think you know why you're here and we'll address that, but your voice probably has some other things in mind for you as well. So when you open up the voice, there's a lot of things that come along with it. 
it, that's been the truth for me uh, in my whole life. You know, that as I've opened up my voice for a long time, I didn't have much high range. I had nothing there. And when that opened up through the work I've, I was doing with various teachers, there was a whole lot of other things that came along with it that I did not expect. Uh, like? A lightness of a lightness of being. I felt like I could stop trying to, a, a kind of way of being a woman that I didn't think was mine to do. Like a, I, I started dressing differently and moving differently. I sort of inhabited my own divine feminine in a different way because I had this, oh, I had this lightness that made me sing differently. Um, and I have had people come in explicitly to work on their uh, becoming more connected to their writing voice. I have I did a Skype session with a woman out in New Hampshire just last week, and she got has been stuck in her writing, and she also stopped singing a bunch of years ago and thought, I wonder if there's a connection here, and so she's opening up her literal voice. But how can you? It's kind of the undeniability thing again. How can if you think you are a certain person or you have these certain qualities? Like for me, I don't have a high voice. Was my story, my identity, and then suddenly I have a high voice. I have to rejigger my whole identity around that fact, and I can't deny it. So people come in, and all kinds of things happen that are mysterious and and astonishing and beautiful. So basically, my job is to use the five elements and my presence and encouragement and simple songs to sort of help people open and then their voice can just get to them. And I love watching what happens. Astonishing people fall in love. They start writing fiction. They uh, get in less fights with their coworkers and friends because they're finding a way to channel their fire in a way that's more useful. Fascinating. Wait, are you saying that you've worked with people and through the way that they shape their words and use a new voice, that that has caused them or empowered them to fall in love? Well, yeah, not that often. <laughs> I want to get so yes, with but it's not like, lonely, well, you work lo- with the, me, the, I'm going to help you fall in love. Yeah, exactly. No, it's not that. It's like the voice has something... I've had a couple of people over the years who were really interested in finding a sweetheart. And so I had them, you know, they were opening up their voices and then they were also singing songs. You know, I have people, when you do the the five elements, those are wild and wacky sounds way out there. And people need some way to bring some of those qualities closer to their speaking, everyday speaking voice. And the way we do that is through little simple songs. So, uh, I always ask people, what do you, what would you like to invoke? You know, there's a, there's a wonderful word, mm-hmm. you know, give voice to bring in through your voice. And some people have said, Ooh, I want, I want a sweetheart or I want to have a better connection with my sweetheart. And I just, I had one client recently who came in cause he wanted to work on his speaking voice. His speech was part of his work and, and he, uh, he was having some people were having trouble hearing him because his voice is light. And, and what he ended up doing is learning a couple of really great songs and singing them to his wife of 30-some years uh, as a present for her birthday. So I felt a little bit like Cupid 
Cupid's best helper <laughs> because he, and you know, he's not going to quit his day job and go make a record or anything. He's a fine, and he had a great musical sensibility and he worked really, really hard on these songs and kept it a secret from her and then sat her down and sang her, uh, their song, our love is here to stay old, you know, great standard. And she just, cried and said that is the most beautiful present you've given me in all these in over 30 years wow. for instance right so he comes in for number you know for for plan a and we have addressed plan a that's been great we always address plan a i mean i'm i'm interested in supporting people and the things they actually want and then i'm also very interested in seeing what else what else have what are the byproducts unforeseen byproducts Yes, the experience. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing is that he didn't realize that the lightness of his voice was holding him back in certain scenarios. You pointed that out to him, and then you gave him some tools, a mindset, to help him have a different voice, not to replace the default Mm -hmm. voice, but just to understand there's appropriate physical context or social scene where you need to use a different, literal, like a different voice. You need to say things differently. You need to get Mm -hmm. into, okay... And this, uh, you use this word light a lot, lightness, which I, it seems like mm-hmm. that's a way that you move about the world in a very light way. I didn't say light the right way right there. Now the, the communications <laughs> major in me and the guy who was in Toastmasters for four years, I'm just hyper-conscious about how I'm saying things. In a, in a good way, I know. Barbara. You're, you're bringing out the best of me. Well, I, I guess okay. I'll let people who are listening decide that. Uh, this, this sense of lightness, though, you said when you open up your voice, a lot comes with it. And for you, it's this mm-hmm. lightness of being. Is it because mm-hmm. of the techniques that you've used with your voice? or I, I have a sense, I don't know if it's right or wrong, that this lightness is not just about the voice. It's also about mm-hmm. your yoga. It's about the way that you play uh, in the world, whether I don't know if you're still going by the Miss or the St. Croix River, or the Mississippi River, and you're just out frolicking all the time, uh, whether it's on ice or not. What what are the attributes or what are the the core elements of you that create this very light person? Mm, thank you. Well, I I'm also really heavy. Let's just be clear. I mean, not physically, but um, there's a it feels like it's the whole gamut. You know, I, I do want to bring light to the world. You know, it feels like there's a lot of anguish right now and lots of anxiety and, and showing up alive is, is a radical act, you know, in most places, showing up embodied, alive, connected in my heart. That is a radical act. And it's increasingly apparent to me that just, just my being uh, already is a gift. Hmm. And I never thought that was true. And that's, I don't, I'm not coming from an arrogant place. I'm just coming from, I think that's true for anyone. If we just really, if anybody really shows up alive and present, it's a, it's a confrontation before they do or say anything. So I think there's something about that. And part of that is, is I, I also really am okay with the dark, uh, and acknowledge, I don't think I do a keynote or a, a teaching group teaching anymore where I don't talk about death and dying because I've been such a student of, of life and death and have spent a lot of time 
in that threshold with my hospice choir. I have a little choir where we sing for people who are having a crappy, a crappy day. doesn't matter. Tell me about that uh, a little. Internet. So you're the founder well, of something called Morning Star Singers. You're a volunteer choir yes. that works yeah. in hospice? Yes. The woman who connected us, actually, originally, is, is one of our members. And uh, I, I heard about that work. It was started by a woman named Kate Munger in the Bay Area. And I heard about the work for years, and I thought, oh, someday when I stop chasing around the world, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to form a choir. And then I finally decided not to. I was on tour with Margaret Wheatley, and she kept talking. You know, we were on a women's leadership revival tour together. And I think around the ninth time I heard her, her talk about don't, don't wait, just start. I thought, oh, maybe I should just start. It only took nine times. Um, so I just put, a, put the word out, and people showed up, and we've been at it for about eight years now. And we are men and women of various musical talents. Uh, we all have to carry a tune, otherwise, you know, because people can't get away from us when we're singing to them, you know. <laughs> right. But um, but we sing in the oral tradition, simple songs of comfort and healing. We've sung for people who are bereaved, depressed. We've sung for pets, believe it or not. And every a couple times a month, uh, those of us who can go to Bethesda Hospital in St. Paul and just go from room to room um, for people who want us to sing for them, and we'll just sing songs, uh, sacred and secular, from many traditions about, you know, just to say, hi, we are, talk about community, you know, we are not here to do a procedure, we're not paid to be here, we have no agenda about converting you to something, we're just, we are the friendly strangers who just say, we see you, we're here, we care, and honestly, I think it's some of the best work I do to just sort of be present in that way and just offer something. So to bring beauty to a place where um, there's not a lot of that. Right. Well, you mentioned yeah. uh, you're also comfortable and you play while you, you operate in the dark a lot too, death and dying. Mm-hmm. That's a topic that I love talking about actually, and we'll have to save that for another conversation. I've started oh, to yes. shift away from thinking of death and dying as something that's the opposite of... Um, dark, you know, lightness. I don't, I don't necessarily think of it as the dark anymore. And maybe that's because I, every once in a while, I have this ritual where I practice dying. It's kind of a, mm-hmm. a weird thing. I, I don't think it's weird, but most people do. When you say, hey, I practice dying, people are like, what? You, you do what? <laughs> My buddy, a 91-year-old dynamo named Sal, taught me how to practice dying. And I think it's wonderful. Mm, and I wish other people great. routinely embraced and introduced death and dying in a very loving, generous, giving way, as opposed to, you know, mm-hmm. when somebody dies, the, the world has taken something from us. Um, you mm-hmm. know, we're, we're left with less, as opposed to thinking mm-hmm. of it as just, this is what happens. All beings who are alive will ultimately end up dead. What right. happens afterwards is a result of either your religion and your beliefs or how you have constructed this idea, this concept of death in your mind. So I'm, I'm going I'm to stop right there because, yes, that oh, is definitely yeah. a we conversation for Yeah, we could talk for, for a two. whole another two hours on that one. <laughs> I, yeah. I just think th- this act of generosity, this act of beauty that you're doing uh, in the hospice work that you do, wow, 
I wonder, what would you recommend for people who are trying to figure out what gift do I have? Yours are very clear, and you're so wonderful at illustrating them. For somebody who feels a little bit stuck, they want to be more generous, they want to be more life-giving, even if it's in a situation where death is knocking. Do you have any kind of resources or suggestions for people who want to give but haven't figured out how they can do it? Oh, boy. I don't know. <laughs> I, I just feel like there's, there are so many clues. Uh, there's so many clues and, and one of the, I guess one of the biggest learnings of my life is, is to just, it's that thing that Meg Wheatley said, just start somewhere and follow it anywhere. That was one of the things she said over and over again on our little tour, start anywhere and follow it everywhere and just notice what won't leave you alone. You know, what are the issues that you keep noticing that nobody else around you maybe is interested in? And for me, for instance, I just, I've had a lot of people die in my community and we've, we've done beautiful work around it, you know, sitting with the body for three days and there's a community casket in this community, you know, over in somebody's garage that I will probably be in when I die. Um, so I, I've just been, I, I think about this all the time. And so um, I guess what are those things that just keep recurring and keep, you keep noticing that other people don't and then just start. Just begin something. It's such a huge improvisation. And uh, I love that Goethe quote, um, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. So I think there's something about just making a move in a direction, a grope even, without knowing all these strategic planners. And it's like, God, I made a lot of money on strategic planning. And when has it ever worked? Ever, never, ever, ever. You make a plan, you work your butt off, it goes and sits in a drawer somewhere. Because the minute you move, the whole system shifts. And then you're working in a different context. Mm -hmm. So I think that that gingerly sort of make a move, look around, make a move, look around, make a move, look around. Uh, Once you start moving, I think the whole system can find you better than if you're just sitting around making a, 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 an ironclad plan because then you're not moving. You're just in your head. That yeah. reminds me of a quote, uh, a buddy of mine, Jonathan Mead. I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically says, I will take, uh, to, to use your words, I will take somebody who's radically alive over overprepared any day. You know, showing yeah. up full and engaged yeah. and pre- as and I've, it, whether it's podcasting or whether it's, you know, doing the facilitating that I do in community situations, I still do have a tendency to plan. But now I'm so much more willing and so much better at just simply showing up and being yeah. alive and knowing that whatever's inside of me will come out when it's the appropriate time. And oftentimes it's just simply being quiet and letting the energy mm-hmm. in the room take over, kind of like you do with your song circles. You just step back. And you realize there's magic here. I don't need to do anything to further it. I might not even be the creator of it. I'm just a participant like everybody else is. Exactly. Responding to what's already there. Yeah. But I do want to say something. I I have become much more diligent about preparing things, which is interesting because I, I have been a huge improviser my whole life. But it, just in the last couple of years, I have fallen in love with the discipline of preparation. Hmm. And I do it a lot walking the river paths, probably by your parents' house. Um, 
I plug in my headset and I walk and talk and people think I'm on the phone <laughs> and I'm actually just riffing. I'm talking through and preparing. And so it's very interesting because, and then once I'm up in front, like uh, doing, I did a keynote for an international conference. I prepared so diligently for that and practiced so much and loved every minute of it. I loved the preparation. And then when I got up, I did a whole bunch of stuff that I prepared. And then there were things that spontaneously arose. So it's a really, I'm surprised by my, I'm surprised by this. Uh, this is not who I thought I was again. Uh, well, but we, I really like the preparation. We change and evolve. And the good news Don't is that we? you and I have prepared. We've prepared for this moment before we, we got on for this chat. And I believe you are prepared to offer a gift for people who are listening right now. Can you tell us what you have in mind? Oh, yes. I uh, would love to send anybody who's interested a copy of my the title track of my latest CD, A World of Wonders. And I've called this song kind of my manifesto. It's like if I was going to say what I believe about my whole life and the whole world, it's kind of all in that, this kind of gospely, big, heart-opening kind of song. So I would be delighted to send anybody uh, that song as a gift and that offer stays true forever, uh, as long as I'm living. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and uh, they can do it by sending me an email. And I think you're going to have that link on your site, or do you want me to give it to them now? I will have a link to the show notes, but if you are confident, I don't know, this offer is indefinite. I don't know if your email address is indefinite, but why don't you just give people the current one as of (laughs) February 2016? (laughs) I don't think it's going to change. It's my name, Barbara at BarbaraMcAfee.com. And McAfee is like the antivirus software, M-C-A-F as in Frank, E-E. Like the antivirus software. <laughs> well, people can finally people can finally spell my name. All the tech nerds know how to spell my name now. Yeah, I need to get some product named after Zeslovsky because it's just a doozy right now. I don't have easy. That is a that. doozy. Well, I have. I've listened to the song. It is wonderful, which is why no pun intended. Uh, which is why I'm I'm really excited <laughs> for other people to be listening to it. Is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you would like people to know? Well. Uh, if they, if they're, if folks are local and they want to come and join us for singing in the light by my community song circles, you that's all on my website, uh, too, on my calendar. Um, we have them about once a month, uh, around my travel schedule and things like that. And all the details will be on my, on my calendar. And there's a reminder list. So if people want to get notices about those, they are delightful. And also if people, you know, would like the Morningstar singers to show up, they could go find that at morningstar.org. Morningstarsingers.org. And uh, we'd love to come and sing for you. Great. I'll have links to that. BarbaraMcAfee.com, your full voice website, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, all that stuff is going to be in the show notes. So people can definitely connect with you after listening to our chat. Wow, Barbara, I, whew, <laughs> I, I'm, I started off this conversation very excited. I end this specific conversation even more amped about you and what you represent, our potential for good to create change in the world and our ability to change ourselves, whether it's through our Mm. voice or anything else. So thank you for this gift that you've given me and everybody else who's listening. I really appreciate it. All right. I bet you didn't think the conversation was going there, did you? There was a wonderful place. Man, what a wide-ranging and downright fascinating chat. Thank you, Barbara. 
Uh, and since I imagine you want to hear more from Barbara, just like I do, take her up on her offer to get an MP3 of her title track on her recent album, World of Wonders, by sending her an email at Barbara at Barbara McAfee.com. Her last name is spelled M C A F E E. Just tell her that you heard her on Smart and Simple Matters and you want the generous gift that she offered. You're going to find links to her email address, links to all the stuff we talk about, talked about, topic timestamps, takeaways, more grooviness. They're all in the show notes at joelzaslavsky.com slash SASM095. You'll also see information in the show notes about how to support me, this show, and our community at joelzaslavsky.com slash support. If you are not already a podcast subscriber, an email newsletter person, getter, dude, or dudette, as I like to call lovely folks like that, if you want to leave a brief iTunes review, whatever else, you're going to find links to all that stuff in the show notes. joelzaslavsky.com slash SASM095. If you want to connect with me, my email, I'm at joel at joelzaslavsky.com. I am on Twitter. My handle there is joelzaslavsky, Z-A-S-L-O-F-S-K-Y. Last thing for you, if you got something out of this episode, whatever it may be, a new skill, a different mindset, an action step to move forward in your life, you just generally dig the show, share it with some folks. Because there is nothing better than someone you trust and respect inviting you to experience something nifty, maybe even this episode. So give the gift of aliveness. Radical is optional. Aliveness is required. Give it to a few nice people, please. I'm going to turn off the mic now and turn up the soundtrack of nature outside my house. That means you've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zaslavsky. Now go simplify something, hug someone, or get your sexy spreadsheet on. Mm-hmm.